0: radioinfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you need to reach me, it's 855-LAWFATHER, lawfather at tampalawfather.com. That is the email address for the show, and that is how the questions for today's show have come in. Social media Facebook at The Law Father, as well as TikTok. Instagram is at The Law Father Tampa, and Twitter at The Law Father TPA. Reach out to me on any one of those platforms, follow us there. Uh, we put some good information up there and just try to have some fun. So, you know, a lot of what's been going on in the news lately and everybody really across the country knows about is the events in Minneapolis and the officer that was charged with murder originally started off as third-degree murder. And uh, there was some rumblings that I saw on social media in the news of maybe it should be second-degree murder. And then they upped the charge to second-degree murder. And uh, on a lesser basis, I've heard a little bit and seen a little bit of rumblings of, well, maybe it should be first-degree murder. And what I'd like to do today is kind of dive into what that really means uh, because, yeah, these are, are somewhat easy terms to throw around and I think we hear it if uh, you know, we watch Law & Order or uh, cop shows and, and lawyer shows and movies. But what does first-degree murder really mean? What does second-degree murder mean? And what does third-degree murder really mean? And to understand that, one of the things that we have to really look at is uh, elements of crimes. So what the elements of crimes tell us, and the elements really of any case, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, is what you have to prove. What are the things that you have to prove to show that you should win your case? Okay, that's the beginning, middle, and end of this thing. And when we look at the different degrees, we are looking at the different elements, and you have to satisfy every element of that degree to fit that crime to win your case. And when we're talking about a criminal case, we're talking about proving something beyond every reasonable doubt. So really, really high burden, uh, different from a civil case where essentially, uh, if you think about the scales of justice, you just have to simply Tip the scales just a little bit, okay? And we've talked about it before using the O.J. Simpson case as the example where he was found not guilty criminally, but he was found at fault civilly and uh, had to make a a big payout on that. So let's look at what the different degrees are and let's let's have a a little bit of a discussion of how we started at third degree, moved to second, and why first degree murder probably doesn't fit in this situation And, and... What happens is if you don't charge it correctly, you stand to lose the case. Now, yes, there are lesser included charges that can come up. Uh, For example, you might have a lesser included charge of manslaughter. So you have a charge of murder in one of the various degrees, which basically says that you intended to kill the person. And then you have manslaughter, which is essentially you did it by accident. Okay, And we're really shortcutting the definitions here, but lowest common denominator, that's what those things really mean and, and your lesser included charge of manslaughter carries a much lesser penalty. So, you know, you have to weigh the two. Do you do the highest thing you can charge and win and feel confident in, or do you go over and above that, knowing that you may have this lesser included, however, the penalty, the prison time that would come along with something like that, would be significantly less. So for example, on a first degree murder charge, it is it can be punishable by death. So you'd be looking at something punishable by death to a lesser included that is some amount of prison time. So let's dive into what these things mean, what the different degrees mean. So we'll start with first degree. First degree is the highest. First degree is the worst. Uh, It's... Really, kind of what you see more of on TV and movies, and the way the statute is, and we're going to look at Florida. Okay, I'm a Florida attorney. I, I don't do any work in Minnesota. I don't actually do work in any other state. So we're going to kind of take the Florida statutes and apply it to the Minneapolis. Uh, you know, murder is one of those things that I would not think that the degrees are wholeheartedly. Different amongst the states, okay? Yeah, I'm sure there are differences, but uh, on a large scale, it's going to be very, very similar. So first degree murder is when, it, when perpetrated from a premeditated design to affect the death of the person killed or any human being. Okay, so the important part there, the important takeaway from first degree is premeditated. And premeditated says you had a thought process that that's what you were going to do prior to you doing it. Even if it was a split second before you had that thought process before you actually did it, you said, I'm going to go kill this person, not necessarily out loud, but in your head. Second degree, The definition by Florida statute is the unlawful killing of a human being when perpetrated by any act imminently dangerous to another and evincing a depraved mind regardless of human life, although without any premeditated design to affect the death of any particular individual, is murder in the second degree and constitutes a felony of the first degree. All right, so there's where we start drawing that difference. First degree, second degree. There's no premeditated event that happens in a second-degree murder, okay? First degree, you have a thought process. You say, I'm going to go kill that person. Second degree, you end up killing the person, but you didn't have that thought process before, all right? Then third degree, by by statutory definition, is the unlawful killing of a human being when perpetrated without any design to affect death by a person engaged in the perpetration of or, an, or in the attempt to perpetrate any felony other than the following, and the statute lists several really severe felonies uh, such as uh, trafficking in drugs, arson, sexual battery, robbery, burglary, kidnapping— escape, uh, presumably prison escape without diving too much into the statute, aggravated child abuse, aggravated abuse of an elderly person or disabled adult, aircraft piracy, unlawful throwing, placing or discharging of a destructive device or bomb. Uh, Those would fall into a a felony murder category, Uh, much different statute than this, much different elements uh, when we talk about felony murder. So that is what third degree is. So third degree, you really didn't mean to. You are are you you weren't intending on killing somebody. You did, and you were in the commission of a felony when you did so. So think about it like this. One example would be, uh, say, grand theft. Now, usually burglary and theft go hand in hand. But for the sake of the example, you steal uh, enough to make it a felony on the theft charge, making it a grand theft. And in the process of doing so, you kill somebody. That's where third degree comes into play. So if we look at Minnesota for the moment, that charge started as third degree, much lesser, okay, much lesser charge, uh, much uh, the elements make it so that it's a little bit easier to prove in a sense. You don't have to prove that you really were intending to kill the person, all right? But you know, when we look at it initially and, and when we start the process on a case, You don't necessarily have all the facts, and sometimes things change. So if we look at it from a state attorney perspective, which is what they'd be looking at from there in the Minnesota case, is they'd be looking at one set of facts, and then they start learning more. They start investigating more. They start building their case more, and they go, oh, hey, you know what? We've learned more about this, and the elements for second-degree murder actually match. Right? They actually match what we have for evidence. They actually match what we can prove, what we can show to a jury and get a jury to get a conviction. Because at the end of the day, when the state attorney is putting a case together, they want to put together the strongest case with the strongest charge that they can, all well knowing that their goal is to get a conviction, to get a jury to convict the person. So when we look at it, we say, okay, well, he had a depraved mind. Well, depraved mind, it's a, its a legal term, but essentially he had bad intentions, right? That's what that means. And didn't necessarily, when the fight started, he didn't walk into that. Now, look, let me take a step back. None of us here, whether in the podcast studio or out in the public, know what his intention was. No one knows what that Minnesota's office, Minnesota officer's intention was when the fight started. Nobody does, okay? The only one that does is him, and certainly he's not going to tell us, okay? We all may have some thoughts and ideas, but here's why second degree makes more sense than first degree. Because there's that thought process of, well, did he or didn't he, right? Did he have that intent when he started or didn't he have that intent when he started? And if we have to ask that question, as if a state attorney's thinking about that question, trying to figure out how to charge it, and charges it on the higher one, higher chance of losing because you have to prove it by every reasonable doubt. And in a charge such as this, you have to have a unanimous jury. Okay, in Florida, you have to have twelve on a capital charge on a um, on a uh, penalty punishable by death. So that's that's big stakes. And to get twelve people when essentially no one truly knows unless he comes out and says I intended to do this when I started this. Okay whole different story, whole different scenario. But because we don't know, second degree makes more sense, okay? Not only does it make more sense, it's it's going to be the one that you can fulfill all the elements. So to take a step to where we started, you have to prove all of the elements. You can prove he had a depraved mind, okay? Eight plus minutes, that's definitely a depraved mind. The act was imminent, so what he was doing was imminently going to result in death, which it did, okay? And there wasn't any premeditated design, so uh, he didn't look at it and, and plan out the process. Okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go uh, walk up to this person, and I'm going to do this act, and this is going to be the end result, which would move us into first degree. So in a nutshell, that's how we get to second-degree murder in the Minneapolis case. Probably the right charge, okay? At least in my opinion, from looking at it and seeing what is your best chance to get a jury to convict. And that's what the goal is anytime you're looking at a criminal case, and that is how we get to there. So really tough topic, really kind of heavy topic. Uh, if you want to take a look at the Ron and Ian show page, uh, and I think we'll have it up on our page here soon, talking about the different things going on in law, law enforcement today, uh, I dive in with, uh, I think it was Ian and Jay that day. I think Ron was out. And just talking about the differences and and what's gone on in law enforcement. Uh, I left law enforcement in 2012, and there's been significant differences uh, between then and now, uh, now in 2020. So it's been some time. I started in 06 and saw some differences from 2006 to 2012, and seeing some differences actually from 12 to 20. So take a listen to that. I don't know if it'll be eye-opening necessarily, but yeah, share some thoughts on there and what we're seeing with things. This episode of the Lawfather Podcast is presented by Golden Pair Funding. My attorney friends, if your clients are looking for pre-settlement or surgical funding, give Golden Pair Funding a call today. They will provide easy underwriting, speedy approvals, electronic signing, competitive rates, and flexibility at settlement when necessary. See, their focus is to make the funding process pain-free and expedient for you and your clients, reducing your administrative burden while providing ample time for you to fight the insurance companies and receive top dollar for your clients. And and I'll tell you, that last point is something that I find to be uh, a major thing when working with loan companies. we, We don't really, as the attorneys give much input to the clients as to who to use for for their loans so a lot of times we'll give three companies for the the client to use and that comes from the florida bar Uh, the florida bar uh, is somewhat strict on these things but i can tell you when a client uses golden pair i find it to be much easier on me you know some of the other companies a lot of work a lot of time, and you know, I, I, I love it when I get Golden Pair come across my desk because we have a letter that that they accept that says that we understand that they have an interest in the case, and I can use the same form letter, sign off on it, and that is my entire input in the process. So my input is hitting the print button, signing it, and handing it to my assistant to get back to them. So Golden Pair funding, that to me on the personal injury side is the way to go. Reach out to them. So if you are looking to work with the industry leader in pre-settlement funding, call Golden Pair Funding today at 813-856-2099. Give them a call today. Tell them the law father sent you. So let's move into something a little bit, I don't want to say, let's just go with a little bit different, okay? A little bit. Lighter, but still very, very serious. Uh, Hillsborough County Schools uh, recently resolved a case here. Uh, so this is a very Tampa-centric story for those of you who are in the Tampa area. And within the past, I'd say it's the past year, uh, my timing may be a little off, but there was a Hillsborough County football player who died during, I think it was a spring practice workout. And there was a lawsuit that, fo- that followed, and the school settled for a million dollars and you know look nothing replaces a life even more so nothing replaces a child's life for that parent and i get that and i understand that the reason why the story is coming up now is that the plaintiff's attorney for that family uh, has put out a call for the schools to institute a one million dollar insurance policy so let's dive into that a little bit as a plaintiff's attorney i like that from some senses in terms of requiring a million-dollar policy because that means that there's more money for us plaintiff's attorneys to go after when there's really an egregious wrong when we're talking about the schools. However, from a practical perspective, I can't say I necessarily agree with that. So let's look at that real quickly. The Florida High School Sports Association used to require the county schools to carry a million-dollar insurance policy. And what was found is that none of the schools, none of the counties were actually carrying that policy. Somewhere along the line, Hillsborough County added that policy. Uh, I believe how it went was there was an incident that happened, and somebody went to go find those policies, found out that there were no policies. So instead of the high school sports association penalizing the counties for not having those policies in place. They just rescinded that rule and put it all back on what we call in the legal world, sovereign immunity. And that is where we're going with this thing. So sovereign immunity is this. The the states, any government cannot be sued, okay? That is the overarching rule. Government can't be sued without permission. That is what sovereign immunity is. Now, let's look at that because how do we get to well, hey, I know that my friend over here you sued the city. I've had cases against the city and county, and um, I don't think we've done any with the state. Um, had a, a postal service one, so uh, with the federal government. So what is sovereign immunity? And if we know that these cases exist, how is it you can sue these places? And what sovereign immunity says is that a state or a governmental entity can, by statute, waive that immunity. And that's what Florida has done. Florida has a waiver of that sovereign immunity and in exchange for that waiver of sovereign immunity, the governmental entities are self-insured, so they don't generally have an insurance company in place. And the max per person is $200,000, $300,000 per incident. And you can go over and above that, but it does require legislative approval, okay? So Florida has said, We're not going to make you ask for permission to sue us. You can sue us. The statute says all the different things that you have to do in order to make that proper, and they put limits on that. The federal government, you have to ask for permission to do it. So essentially, governments and governmental entities, for example, the school boards, so the county school boards fall under that. They have a cap of $200,000 per person, $300,000 per incident. If I'm a county and I'm a school board, why why should I be forced to go get a million-dollar policy? There's nothing in the statute that says that I need to, right? So when we look at that, that's what that means, okay? And I, like I said, I, from a personal injury perspective, it's good because it opens things up a little bit, and a private insurance company is usually easier to deal with than the city or the county. The city and the county can be difficult because— They have constituents to answer to. They have city councils to answer to. They have uh, county commissioners to answer to. So when we look at that million-dollar policy, Hillsborough County does have it for the schools. Should it be required for everybody? I, I can't see a reason to, and honestly, I can't really see a reason why a county would want to because your exposure is really capped, and there's really not much anybody can do about that. But that is a push right now here in Tampa and Hillsborough County. Keeping along the the football world and realm, and keeping things relevant and uh, really consistent with the times, a lot of the big time college football programs, and not just football but athletics as a whole, have started to come back. And you know, we're seeing a uh, University of Houston just shut down their voluntary workouts because I think they had eight players that tested positive for coronavirus, and not sure why, but they didn't test everybody. And could you possibly see? Some litigation stem from that here in the future? Yeah, I I would say that could be possible, okay? If you're going to say, hey, come on back, and the standard is starting to be set by some of these other places by testing everybody, why didn't you, Houston? Not really sure, but let's look at what Ohio State has done. Ohio State has done something interesting, calling it a waiver, okay? Also calling it a promise, and what Ohio State has done is they've put A document in front of their players to sign, and it says that you will do certain things and you will agree to practice social distancing outside of campus and and you will follow all of the rules as outlined. Okay, and you have to sign off on it. Now, the university has come out and said, We don't intend this to be a legal document. We don't intend to use this to defend ourselves if a lawsuit comes in the future. But I'll tell you what I guarantee you: if an Ohio State player caught coronavirus, walked in my door, and wanted to bring a case, and we brought a case. Now, look, I'm not licensed in Ohio, so I couldn't actually bring a case in Ohio. But let's just say for the for the example that I could, okay? And we walk in, and we go, okay, Ohio State, we're going to sue you, or we are in, and we are suing you for your role in this player being injured as a result of coronavirus. I guarantee you, their defense attorney, the first thing he's going to do is go, look at this waiver they signed. You can call it what you want. You can call it a promise. You can call it a waiver. They're going to point to that. And they're going to say, and, I, and, I, and you can take this to the bank, they're going to say that, hey, your client violated one of these things. Your client went to place X, whatever that place may be, that's not allowed. Your, your client walked into this restaurant that was packed to the gills, and I don't care that he walked in and grabbed takeout and left. He was in there. He violated this promise, okay? Call it what you want. Call it a waiver. Call it a promise. I guarantee you that defense attorney is going to use that. Hopefully we never see that. Hopefully we never see anything serious that comes from any of these athletic programs starting back up. Glad to see the athletic program starting back up. Uh, now if we could just get Baseball on board with starting back up, and it looks like we may, but from a, a very forced perspective, uh, the commissioner does have that ability. But hey, sports are starting again. Very good news, and hopefully we actually don't see any personal injury cases as a result of this. I'm sure we will. I'm sure it's going to happen. I'm sure someone's going to get sick. I'm sure someone's going to blame it on coming into contact with large groups as a result of some sporting event. It's going to happen sure of it, but hopefully we don't, all right? And if we do, I'll bring it here to you and we'll break it down just like we break down a lot of different aspects and a lot of different topics. Let's look at some listener questions. As always, these questions come in through lawfather at tampalawfather.com, which is the email dedicated to this show. I copy and paste them into my notes for the show, and then I read them live and answer them live. So here we go. I was involved in a hit-and-run crash. The person who hit me ran. I am hurt. What can I do? And this, for whatever reason, I've been seeing a big uptick in this. Really don't know why. Uh, I've been getting a lot of calls on hit-and-run drivers and uh, no information on the car that hit them. People just call me up and go, hey, I, I was hit, the guy ran, and I'm hurt. So kind of really pertinent to the times. Here's here's what you have. You have your insurance to start with, okay? That's your personal injury protection. You can treat your first $10,000 of treatment with the doctor of your choosing who accepts personal injury protection insurance. Uh, A lot of times, we find that primary care physicians don't generally accept that personal injury protection insurance, so a lot of times, we have to go to a chiropractor or an urgent care or a hospital who do accept those, uh, a lot of specialists, Uh, so orthopedics, neurosurgeons, neurologists they'll accept personal injury protection. Uh, that's generally one of the benefits of having an attorney in those is that we have those relationships with the doctors who we know will accept that personal in- injury protection insurance because not everybody is set up to do that. So that's your first step, uh, those of you hurt in a hit-and-run crash and wondering what you can do about it. Uh, secondarily, if you have uninsured motorist coverage and – it is one of the things that I highly recommend to all of my clients is to get uninsured motorist coverage. That will protect you as well. So what that is is if the person who hits you doesn't have any insurance, or if the person runs and you don't have any idea who they are, or you don't have any description of the car, you can fall back on your uninsured motorist coverage, which goes over and above your personal injury protection, which your personal injury protection only goes to paying the doctors. Your uninsured motorist coverage can cover your medical bills. It can cover any future medical costs that you have. It can cover your pain and suffering and your lost wages. Okay, and I'm really boiling that down. There's a little bit more detailed explanation on those. And if you want to have that that discussion with me, more than happy to, 855-LAWFATHER, or email me, lawfather at tampalawfather.com, and we'll discuss that in a lot more detail. So let's move to question number two. I just moved to Florida last month, but due to the stay-at-home time, I want to get divorced. I heard that I have to wait. Is that true? Now look, I don't do a ton of family law as I've mentioned here in the past. Uh, we have Monique Scott in our office who does. Uh, but one of the, the little small pieces that I know about uh, Florida family law is that you have to be domiciled in Florida before you can initiate a divorce proceeding in Florida. And what does domiciled mean? It means that you have to be a resident in florida for a specified period of time it has to be your home it has to be uh to use the the actual term and the definition it has to be your domicile okay that's what that means uh, i believe the time period is six months in florida that you have to live in florida for six months before you can initiate a divorce proceeding in florida now why might you want to initiate a divorce proceeding in florida versus another state some states are at fault states so if you did something to cause the divorce, uh, i.e you cheated on the other person, you could stand to lose more of your assets, whereas Florida is what's called a no-fault state. Uh, we talk about no-fault in car insurance, which we just talked about with the personal injury protection coverage. Well, also no-fault for family law, so the court doesn't care who did what, and it just looks at the assets, and the marital assets get split 50-50. Okay? So that is the family law in a nutshell. You do have to be domiciled in Florida, If you want more information than that, definitely get with Monique Scott in our office, 855-LAWFATHER, best way to get a hold of her. And she will be able to answer all those questions because that's what she does on an everyday basis. So hope that answers that question. Hope I answered all the questions for the day. And if you do have a question, lawfather at tampalawfather.com or shoot me a direct message on social media. All of those are, if you just search, at the Father, you will get all the different variations of it. 855-LAW-FATHER, please rate, review, and subscribe. And you know what? If you want to talk to me outside of just asking a question, if you have a comment about anything we've talked about on the show, love to hear from you. I'd love to be able to integrate listener comments. And you know, if you want to hear more detail on a topic that I touch on, let me know. And we'll either have a private conversation or... We'll work it in to a future podcast. So love talking to everybody. Love being able to put this information out here for everybody. That is the show for this week. Lawfather out. This is a forking around town with Tracy Guida quick fix on radio influence.
1: I am absolutely ecstatic to share my guest, who is Linda Baldwin from Intelligent Gourmet in South Tampa. What we've tried to do is find a space that's good for people, for everybody. So like as you said, you can bring your dog and you sit on our front porch. We have umbrellas out there. We'll bring out water for your dog. We'll even cook your dog an egg or you can have a little bit of spinach and vegetables or some of Michelle's wonderful food from Love and Pups. So you can do all that. You're can have a grass-fed beef burger if you're not in the mood. We also make smoothies, wraps, sandwiches. We're Tampa's original juice company. So all of our vegetables are organic. All of our meats are certified. Everything is grass-fed, non-GMO. We're very careful with all of our selections. And you can do a peanut butter and jelly for your child, and a, and a half a smoothie, and you can stuff yourself on spaghetti squash lasagna. So that was our big goal, was to make a place where you could come with your entire family, and it would be affordable.
0: Forking Around Town with Tracy Guida can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.